Howdy do, I'm James Baquet, also known as the Temple Guy. I got home from the first leg of my Chinese pilgrimage on August 26, 2009, and four days later, I was standing in one of China's highest-rated tourist destinations, the Terracotta Army that's part of the mausoleum of the first Qin Emperor. In just three short days, not counting the days flying to and from, we would visit this A-A-A-A-A site, that's five A's, as well as four temples from my list, the first of which we'll see in this episode of... Temple, temple Tales. The modern city of Xi'an is actually one of the oldest cities in China, and with Beijing, Nanjing, and Luoyang, Chang'an, its then name, was one of the four great ancient capitals of China. It was the capital that presided over the glorious Tang Dynasty, which lasted from 618 to 907, as well as nearly a dozen others. You can circumambulate the central core of the city in a half day, faster if you rent a bike. It's surrounded by an ancient but largely reconstructed city wall. Marvel at the bell tower, where the two main streets cross, or the drum tower on West Street, where you can also wander through the Muslim Quarter, home of the first mosque built in China. For the temple guy, of course, the attraction is the temples. Four listed ones inside or very near the walls, and four farther outside, as well as numerous small temples of less interest to tourists, but of great interest to Templars. See episode 047 for a visit to some of these related to the life of Kukai, a Japanese monk who studied there during the Tang. The region surrounding the city has long been a focus of imperial activity, with ancient temples, ruined palaces, and emperor's tombs. Among the last of these is the world-renowned burial place of the Qin Emperor, after whose name we call China, with its guards of clay, the Terracotta Warriors. I first got wind of the Warriors when some of them came to Los Angeles for a visit in the 80s. I even bought a poster of one of them in the museum shop and framed and hung it in my house for years. But never did I ever expect that I would be taking a bus 25 miles outside the city of Xi'an to see these guys in situ. And frankly, I still wouldn't have seen them if Leela hadn't come along on this trip and insisted... I've since been in Beijing without seeing the Forbidden City, Tiananmen Square, Mao's Mausoleum, or the touristy section of the Great Wall, in Chengdu and not seen pandas, and in Shanghai without going up in the Oriental Pearl TV Tower. When I'm on the Temple Trail, I don't have time for tourism. But by golly, I saw those warriors and... meh. Let me tell you that I seem to be alone in this evaluation. Folks are wowed by it. 4.6 stars out of 5 in 2,903 Google reviews, a rating of excellent. I was bored. I've been to a dozen AAAAA attractions in China and seen a couple more from my taxi window, and this was by far not the greatest of them. It's a World Heritage site and all, but... More interesting to me than the site was the story. From time immemorial, bits and pieces of terracotta figures and pieces of brick and tile had turned up in the area around the hill believed to house the Emperor Qin's tomb. But in 1974, about a mile east of the site, a bunch of farmers were digging a well and came up with an intact terracotta head. They pulled out some ancient weapons and pieces of more broken warriors, gave them to some cultural workers in the local Cultural Relics Protection Department, and went on with their business, unaware of the significance of their find. It wasn't until some journalist who had come to visit local relatives and somehow witnessed the restoration work on the artifacts that the central government was informed of the discovery, and excavation began nearly three months after the discovery. 
The thousands of men and horses in the necropolis are now known to comprise the largest pottery figurine group ever found. When we visited in 2012, one of the old farmers was still on hand to greet visitors, having become something of an international celebrity. Some factoids. 1. These things were in fragments and have been meticulously glued together, and sometimes had pieces filled in. It takes three experts about a half year to completely restore one warrior. 2. The originals were vividly painted. 3. This was a humane innovation, substituting the clay soldiers for the old practice of retainer sacrifice, as practiced in Egypt and elsewhere, where household retainers, guards, wives, concubines, et al., were killed to go with the king when he died. Nice. Anyway, that was day one. Let me say a word here about Tibetan Buddhism and its relation to the more common strain of Mahayana Buddhism found in China. I've never been to Tibet, but took one course in Tibetan Buddhism in my never-completed study for a PhD in Buddhism, and have visited several Tibetan-style temples in the ethnically Han, not-Tibetan, area of China. We typically say that Buddhism comes in two flavors, the Mahayana, or Great Vehicle, typically found in East Asia, and the Theravada, or Way of the Elders, more common in South and Southeast Asia. See episode 028 for the difference between these two. In this binary model, the kind of Buddhism found in Tibet, sometimes called Vajrayana, or the Diamond or Thunderbolt Vehicle, is just a variation on the Mahayana. Yes and no. While there are strong similarities, some of the elements are radically different, and at their root, the very belief in the use of secret gestures, jargon, and practices, called mudra, mantra, and meditation, set it off as a distinct third division. Likewise, Tibetan Buddhism has a separate history, and thus you'll find figures in Tibetan temples not usually found elsewhere. In a nutshell, Mahayana Buddhism went west out of India and around the Himalayas and through Central Asia, the Stands, via the Silk Road, actually a network of roads, into China, while what became Tibetan Buddhism crossed over the Himalayas directly through Nepal to Lhasa. It was only later, with the interaction of the two nations, that the two mingled to some extent. Xi'an, by the way, has been thought of as the end of the Silk Road, though a lot of traffic passed right on through, some of it all the way to Japan. And so, like apes and men, it's not that one of these was derived from the other, but that the two sprang from the same root. Now, there's a political aspect to this. China's claim is that, quote, Tibet is now and always has been a part of China, end quote. My studies tell me that's not true. What is true is that at least since the beginning of the Yuan Dynasty in 1279, China's destiny and Tibet's have been inextricably intertwined, because the Yuan emperors were Mongols, and if you look at it just right, Mongolia and Tibet are two aspects of one culture. I'll leave it at that but this is important background for understanding the temple we're about to visit. Because we were staying just west of North Street, and Guangren Temple is located smack dab inside the northwest corner of the city wall, we were able to walk from our hotel to the temple in just 15 minutes or so on our second morning in town, taking pictures along the way. The first thing that tells us we've strayed outside of strictly Chinese Buddhism is the striking row of eight white stupas along the front wall, outside the temple's main gate, symbolizing the eight great merits of Shakyamuni, with Tibetan-style prayer flags flying over them. The buildings and the layout were more Chinesey, but with exotic touches that seemed to be more of an afterthought, a sort of Tibetan facelift of painted panels on the walls, and so on. The mountain gate is just a gate, not a hall. A pair of deer face an eight-spoked wheel on the roof, 
The wheel represents the Buddha's first sermon called the Turning of the Wheel of Dharma. The eight spokes allude to the Noble Eightfold Path. The deer remind us that that sermon took place in the deer park in the city of Sarnath. This is a common roof ornamentation in Tibetan-style temples. A 20-foot-high spirit wall stands 33 feet wide just inside the gate, unusual in that they're usually outside. Immediately behind that is a pretty little eight-sided steely pavilion housing a 17-foot-tall, you guessed it, steely, written by Qing Emperor Kangxi, who issued the temple's founding edict in 1703. Guangrun was built as a way station for high-level lamas traveling along the Silk Road between China's northwest and the capital in Beijing. It was fully restored in 1952 and was again upgraded and expanded in 2006. The Qing were Manchus, another ethnic group like the Yuan Mongolians related to Tibetans. You may recall that in episode 041, when we visited the Qing summer resort in Chengde, we discussed the Qing tolerance of multiple ethnicities and promotion of harmony between all groups. Viewed from above, the temple said to resemble a stretched out sleeping dragon. In fact, Wolong, meaning sleeping dragon, was the name of the temple we'd visit that afternoon. In a courtyard behind the steely pavilion, the two octagonal free life ponds, ostensibly for releasing captive animals, constitute the two eyes of the dragon. There's a drum tower on the left and a bell tower on the right of this courtyard. Next comes a peculiarly laid out heavenly king's hall, the tallest hall in the temple. In keeping with the sleeping dragon theme, the temple halls are higher in the front, starting here, and slope down to the rear like a dragon's back. This is the opposite of most temples, where the buildings get higher as you go. Typically, a heavenly king's hall would have a Maitreya, or laughing Buddha, in the center, with a statue of Wei Tuo, a sort of general, standing back to back with him, and the four kings, for which the hall's named, standing in each corner. Instead, here, a huge, beautiful thousand-armed Guanyin, or Avalokiteshvara, with a Buddha springing out of her ornate crown and a third eye, stands in the center. She is the largest statue of the thousand-hand Guanyin in Shanxi. Wow! The four kings are ranged against the back wall, two on each side of the door. A small Maitreya sits in front of the two on the left, and a Wei Tuo in front of the two on the right. I've never seen such a layout before or since. A typical Tibetan Wheel of Life mandala image hangs outside on the back wall of this hall. The next courtyard behind the Heavenly King's Hall is shaded by trees. A very small pavilion in the center, called the 10,000-year oil lamp pavilion, contains a cauldron-sized oil lamp. On the left stands a longevity hall, a common name for a hall housing Amitabha, the Buddha of infinite life and infinite light, among several other statues. Across the way is a hall dedicated to the Dharma protectors, very scary, nearly demonic-looking Tibetan figures. The temple's central hall has 40 prayer wheels mounted around it. Turning one of these is like completing the recitation of the mantra written on the drum, Om Mani Padme Hom, Hail the Jewel in the Lotus. The hall is dedicated to the green Tara with one shoe, or Manjushri, and Pushien, or Samantabhadra, on the left and right. This is said to be the only temple in China in which the green Tara takes center place, making this her headquarters. In Vajrayana, she's a female Buddha, hence her place on the main altar here. In Mahayana, she's a Bodhisattva, like an incarnation of Guanyin or Avalokiteshvara. All are decidedly Tibetan in appearance. The next courtyard has, on the left, a hall dedicated to Guangong, also called in Buddhism Jielan, another temple protector who's widely venerated by business people for prosperity, and, on the right, a suitably extravagant hall for Tsai Shun, the Chinese god of wealth. Tibet, I read, has five such gods. In this one courtyard, we seem to have two. At the rear of this courtyard is the Thousand Buddhas Hall, the third main hall of the temple. 
In the center, we find the Tibetan master Tsongkhapa, with two of his disciples, surrounded as advertised by a thousand small Buddha statues. Tsongkhapa, who lived from 1357 to 1419, was one of Tibet's foremost religious philosophers and founder of the Gelugpa, or Yellow Hat sect of Lamas, the Dalai Lama's sect. No Lama temple in China is complete without an image of him somewhere. A small pleasant courtyard behind this one is anchored by what was at the time the last hall of the temple, a sutra repository. They say that in the old days the Panchen Lama used to stay in rooms to the right of this courtyard and the Dalai Lama opposite when traveling from Lhasa to Beijing. A banner on a wall next to the courtyard, as well as the temple diagram, indicated that there would soon be one more hall behind this one, a precious hall of the great hero against the back wall. I imagine it's finished by now. For the time, though, the Buddha was represented in the sutra repository by a most unusual figure, a life-size statue of the 12-year-old Shakyamuni. There are said to be only two such in the world, the other being in the Jokang Temple in Lhasa, which was brought there by the lady we'll meet next. This one, I guess, is a replica of that one. The merit of seeing this statue, they say, is the same as seeing Buddha Shakyamuni himself. Lucky me! Next to this figure is one of the niece of Emperor Taizong of the Tang Dynasty, Princess Wencheng, who in 640 married a Tibetan king named Songtsen Gampo, founder of the Tibetan Empire. It was she who brought the statue of the 12-year-old Buddha to Tibet. Tradition says that she and the king's other wife from Nepal introduced Buddhism to the Tibetan region. Lhasa's Jokong Temple, they say, was built to house the 12-year-old Buddha statue and another brought by the Nepali wife. Though history does seem to indicate that Buddhism was introduced to Tibet about this time, it seems to have come directly from India via Sanskrit documents. Also honored in this temple is Wang Zhaojun, known as one of the four great beauties of China. She was sent along the Silk Road to marry the chief of the Xiongnu, perhaps what we call Huns, in China's far west. Easily lost among Xi'an's more spectacular sights, this cozy little temple was an unexpected and pleasurable find. And that's about that. Until next time, may you and your loved ones, and all sentient beings, be well and happy. Adios, amigos! Hey, check out the newsletter, which serves as the show notes for this episode, number 098, at templetales.substack.com. It has pictures and links, and at that address, you'll also find the archive with all of the newsletters. I think you'll be glad you did. In the next episode, let's visit another three-well temple, this one on the shores of Lake Biwa and at the foot of Mount Hiei in Shiga Prefecture, Japan.